When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All right, it's time. Welcome back to the Book Riot podcast and another edition of Book Nerd Movie Club. You, the listeners, well, several dozen of you at least, uh, voted for Fried Green Tomatoes. Rebecca and I have duly watched and read the book and movie, well, the book Fried Green Tomatoes at the Whistle Stop Cafe by Fanny Flagg. And then the movie Fried Green Tomatoes, 1992's sleeper hit, really, um, which we'll talk about in a minute when we get to the facts and figure section. Um, before we dive in, though, let's do a general, our experience of watching the book, watching the book, reading the movie. <laughs> reading movies would be a good uh, uh, podcast title if we did this as its own feed, reading mm-hmm. movies. Anyway, um, we were just talking a little bit before, but Rebecca, before we get into specifics, how, what was your experience of revisiting or visiting these two texts uh, in their own right this time. Around. Oh man, it was super interesting. Um, Fried Green Tomatoes has been part of my the movie has been part of my like cultural like media memory for about as long as I've had one. My parents are from the Deep South, um, a small town, probably bigger than um, where the Whistle Stop Cafe is located, but not that much bigger. <laughs> Um, and I know my mom, like this movie was just part of my childhood Mm. and references to some of the characters were also just part of my childhood. And I knew these Southern people that were like the characters in the book, but it's, it was a rewatchable in the early parts of my life, but it's probably, I realized watching the movie last night that it's probably been, I don't know, 15 years since I've watched the whole thing. Like Mm. it's one of those now that if I pass it on cable, especially if it's at like one of the best scenes I'll watch for 15 or 20 minutes, but I'm not seeking out fried green tomatoes. So rewatching the movie with my like approaching middle-aged, very feminist eyes was really interesting Mm. um, through the lens of 2020 politics and reading the book was like, I have had a great affection for the movie, but reading the book was really, I really, just loved the experience Mm. and was so surprised by how much more happens on the page, both in terms of the stories from the characters that we do meet in the movie, but really how much more Fanny flag does to flesh out all of the people of the town Mm -hmm. um, and their lives that, you know, we don't get any hint of in the movie. What about you? Um, Yes. uh, I had seen the movie when it came. I don't know if I saw it in theaters or not. Um, I would have been 14 when it came out and, uh, I went to see a lot of things. Um, it was it's not typically a teenage boy kind of a movie, but I, I tended not to adhere to those you know familiar boundaries. Mm-hmm. But I'd seen it enough since that it, I've seen it several times. Probably only I mean to be honest, this is the '90s way of watching movies for most of us, which was you probably saw it once in the theater, maybe you rented it once. And then you caught it in pieces as you did on cable from time to mm-hmm. time. So I think my experience, it's not one of my favorite, it's like one, not one of the close to me kind of movies we sometimes do on this show. But I do remember a fondness for it. And several scenes became part of, 
I, I think I remember it better in scenes than the whole. Mm-hmm. There were, I felt like yeah. there was big swaths of this movie I had absolutely no recollections of. And then some of the scenes were, were very, very familiar. And I remembered them very much beat for beat. And I, this go around, I read the book first and then watched the movie. Um, and some of the things played out differently. A lot of things play out differently than the book. But a couple of the scenes, I could say, okay, this is almost exactly how it happens in the movie. And then it's totally different in the book. One scene that was basically note for note where I remember it is when Evelyn Couch, played by Kathy Bates, does the I have more insurance than you. Kind of yeah, an iconic uh-huh. scene. Maybe the iconic scene from the movie. We can get back to that um, uh-huh. in a minute. So that played out very much like it did in the book. But the one that stuck out in my mind that was quite different is when Iggy Threadgood, played by Mary Stuart Masterson, um, with her brother, whose name was Julian, and then Big, um, Big George come to get Ruth from her home where she's mm-hmm. being abused by Frank mm-hmm. Bennett. And it's a very physical scene. And in the yeah. book, it's much more kind of get the hell out of there. Um, yeah, I didn't remember that scene from the movie mm. either. And I was like gasping when it happened on screen last night because the book was so fresh in my mind. And I was like, how did I not remember that it happens this way? Right. So I guess that's a way, a way of saying that I have like many cultural documents that I remember fondly, but then don't become part of my personal pantheon and uneven sort of yeah. recollection and familiarity with. Um, I, I found, we'll get to the book and I had never read the book before. I wasn't sure quite what I would say on the whole, the book was more um, nuanced and sophisticated than I was expecting on the whole. Is that anything like what yeah, your experience of it was? That's right in line with my experience of it. I know a couple of weeks ago on our regular show, we were teasing how the um, the back cover has quotes from reviews from the New York Times and the LA Times and the Washington Post. And there's a blurb from Harper Lee. Yeah. And I was like, you know, this must have been taken seriously and reviewed critically in its time. And that sort of tipped me off to maybe there's something going on here. And certainly the relationship between... Iggy and Ruth is prog- was progressive mm-hmm. for the time and the story that she's telling has in the film even has some progressive undertones but the book was much more um, progressive on the page and much sharper mm-hmm. than I was expecting it to be to all great effect yeah um, I was really impressed so one of the I mean this is a segment we'll do at the end uh, if you have to save one or the other I think it's going to be a horse race um, in a lot of ways, uh, there's some things about the movie I would I would certainly hate to lose, but as a work itself, as a more complete work, um, the book exceeded my expectations considerably, which I shouldn't be surprised by. I, I don't. I mean, I shouldn't come to these yeah. being surprised that the book is going to have more nuance and detail because they just can on the whole. And this is a pretty long movie for for the for mm-hmm. the day and the genre, which is sort of dramedy bordering on melodrama frankly we don't really get movies like this anymore like where the emotional apex is someone dying slowly in a bed we don't get right. that as much as we used to back in the old terms of endearment and beaches and other things like that right i mean we, that's not a genre we see very often it's true yeah um, it was a very late 80s early 90s yeah. mood um and and the book does some things that i think are quite interesting you know my my english nerd English school nerd's brain was lighting up in a lot of ways, which we'll mm. talk about. Um, we're going to transition talking more specifically about the book and its publication history in just a second. But first, uh, let's do a sponsor. Today's episode is brought to you by Penguin Team. 
In a world where the children of the gods inherit their powers, a descendant of the Greek fates must solve a series of impossible murders to save her sisters, her soulmate, and her city. Descendants of the fates are always born in threes. There's one to weave, one to draw, and one to cut the threads that connect people to the things they love and to life itself. And the Aura sisters are no exceptions. There is Eo, the youngest, who uses her fate-born abilities as a private investigator, but her latest job leads her to a horrific discovery. Somebody is abducting women and setting the resulting wraiths loose in the city to kill. Now, the second book in the series, Hearts That Cut, will be on sale June 18th, 2024. This is a must-read for all Greek mythology and fantasy fans. This is dripping with atmosphere, edge with danger. Threads That Bind weaves together a gorgeous dark tapestry of mystery, fated romance, and modern myth. You won't be able to put this one down. And that comes from Alexandra Bracken, New York Times bestselling author of Lore. So make sure to pick up Threads That Bind by Kitsa Hatsapolu. And thanks again to Penguin Teen for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Avid Reader Press. So this next book is a really fun sounding mashup of different genres. There's a little time travel, a little romance, a little spy thriller action going on. So in the near future, a civil servant is offered the salary of her dreams and is shortly afterward told what project she'll be working on. A recently established government ministry is gathering quote unquote expats from across history to establish whether time travel is feasible for the body, but also for the fabric of space time. This is an exquisitely original and feverishly fun fusion of genres and ideas. The Ministry of Time by Colleen Bradley asks, what does it mean to defy history when history is living in your house? Colleen Bradley's answer is a blazing, unforgettable testament to what we owe each other in a changing world. It kind of gives Outlander meets Cloud Atlas or If the Time Traveler's Rife was written by Sally Rooney or Colson Whitehead. Make sure to check out The Ministry of Time by Colleen Bradley. And thanks again to Avid Reader Press for sponsoring this episode. So this was Fanny Flagg's second book. Um, her first was more of an auto fiction memoir situation, which did pretty well. Spent 10 weeks um, in the New York Times bestseller list. Then Fried Green Tomatoes came out. Uh, and spent 36 weeks on the New York Times bestseller list. I was really poking around, and this is one of those, you know, data we want but never get. Was this a book club book of of the late 80s, early 90s? God, it seems like it almost has to be. It's dying to be a book club book. I couldn't find evidence of that. I was poking around for it also, and I was trying to find, like, total sales history. Like, often for titles like this, you can find something that's, Mm -hmm. like, you know, more than 10 million copies in print, and I couldn't I couldn't either. Fascinating Um, to see. But the paperback edition, I have a trade paperback edition from um, Ballantine, and it has the Random House Reader Circle seal on the spine and um, a book club, like a set of book club reader's guide questions in the back, along with mm. an interview with Fanny Flagg. Oh, I should have got that. There. I didn't get that edition. I just got the straight yeah, up regular yeah. Valentine mass market. Yeah, I didn't know that it was in there when I ordered it, but that's what I got. Um, and so it's this feels reminiscent to me of what um, Harper Perennial is doing now yes. with book club editions yes. of things. Let me see the copyright sounds of flipping pages. Yeah. The copyright on this edition is 1987. Hmm. Um, so yeah, that's 
Oh, and sorry, the first Ballantine Books edition was 1997. So this is about, my copy is about 10 years after the mm. original came out and it had had time to establish itself. And the uh, interview with Fanny Flagg is between her and her editor talking about the decisions that she made and, you know, some of the characters. And there's a teaser of her next book in the back. So mm. they're still like, in 1997, 10 years later, they're still writing on people reading this book in groups and talking to each my other. My guess it. is the book you have in your hot little hands is is the re-release of Fried Green Tomatoes that came out in anticipation of Fanny Flagg's follow-up book, which didn't come out for 11 years. So it, didn't, it was, right, yeah, it was coming out right around 1997. Yes, it's called I Still Dream About You. Yeah. And there, yeah, there's an excerpt, you know, 10 yeah. pages excerpt at the very back of the book. So, you know, using the affinity for the early book to try to make Fanny Flagg into an institution. I haven't read anything about her, her uh, follow-up books of any kind. I don't. I have very dim, not not in terms of like um, intelligence, but my own like amount of, mm-hmm. you know, my brain space didn't have a lot of room in it for whatever Fanny Fanny Flag re- represents. She took eleven year break um, between writing fiction again. There was the the fried green tomato or the Whistle Stop Cafe cookbook came out in nineteen ninety three. Mm-hmm. I saw which actually sold pretty well. It looks like her own story. I would like the Fanny Flag autobiography. I realized as we, I think we talked about this a little bit in, in mm-hmm. one of the run up to the show. She's an actress who got discovered doing, you know, improv comedy sketch shows in a New York club. Got on a match game. Um, she was apparently writing during this time. She was she was writing some short fiction that got published. Um, apparently, what the, my favorite anecdote is she was the match game. It's it's kind of a celebrity game show kind of a situation, but one of the segments you had to write your answers, and she her she was a terrible speller, um, and someone watching apparently was a teacher recognized that she had dyslexia because of some of the consistent patterns of mistakes she was oh, making wow. in sell- mm-hmm. spelling, and wrote her and I guess it changed her writing life um, to buy a diagnosed with dyslexia, and part of part of what went into here, she's an actress, um, a couple of high profile relationships. Um, Rita Mae Brown and her autobiography spilled some tea on her relationship with Fanny Flagg and some of Fanny Flagg's subsequent relationships. Um, but a gay woman who doesn't sound like she was out in Hollywood. I mean, she may have been out in Hollywood, but out publicly. Not even sure she was a big enough name to be, quote unquote, out in Hollywood. But part of her own story is growing up in the South as a questioning gay, didn't maybe not even know the word at the time. And I think some mm-hmm. of that really plays to powerful effect in the book and the movie. Yeah. Um, and ever since it's sort of been publishing, it looks like, and I just flipped through a couple of them, or at least look at the Kindle excerpts of a kind of winking, fun, commercial, uh, authorial voice that I can see people, I could spend some more time in the flag world if it's anything like Whistle Stop and maybe differently in some other places. But, um, you know, all the paperbacks have sort of the same branding and all the kind of things like they're branding so you know you're in for a fanny flag book. Finally, this fall, another book in the Whistle Stop world, is, I don't remember the title, but it has Whistle Stop in the name, is coming out in the fall. So return after all these times. Um, let's see. Anything else about the the book itself, the backstory publication you found interesting before we get into the text itself, Rebecca? Uh, no, I think you really hit that. Yeah. Yeah, the 36 weeks on the bestseller list. And also, I did find the average Goodreads rating for this book is 4.3 stars, which wow. is well above yeah. average with 259,000 plus 
reviews. So beloved. So as as you and I came to the book with fresh eyes, with some familiarity with the movie, I think for me, the thing that struck me was its textual complexity. Not so much the writing style is difficult, but it's an intertextual um, book. It has a lot of different kinds of writing, found writing, you know, news. Dot Weems is uh, one of the mm-hmm. things I find myself missing the most in the movie that I didn't yeah. know to miss until I'd read the book was these dispatches. <laughs> the Weems Weekly. The Weems Weekly, the dispatch from the post office of um, Whistle Stop, Alabama, which gave comings and goings, um, you know, with a certain kind of wry fondness for the people of the town, mm-hmm. um, a, a winning, cutting, uh, ongoing critique of her her dear partner husband, um, but then there's obituaries. Um, there's a few letters in there. There's newspaper articles from other mm-hmm. places which don't make it into here. Um, yeah. And then the, the then the regular sort of third person narration, and and then you know these long sections of Nini Threadgood, sort of just telling stories that are you know, basically reproductions of sort of an oral history of Whistle Stop, and especially the Threadgoods mm-hmm. centering on. Really Iggy, and then part of Iggy's story is Ruth, and in the movie, I think one thing we'll find really centers Iggy and Ruth's relationship in a way, and a lot more than the book does, and has to leave some things out to do that. I think it makes sense in a lot of ways, but um, I think if you'd read the book first and came to the movie second, you'd be surprised how much screen time and agency Ruth gets than she does in the book. Yeah, yes. And just in general, I think, um, I know growing up watching the movie, I thought Fried Green Tomatoes was a story about Iggy and mm-hmm. Ruth. And Evelyn has her moments on screen. But the book is, there's just so, it's so much bigger in so many ways. And it's a story about Iggy and Ruth. It's a story about this Southern place. And it's a story about race relations. And it's a story about this, about Evelyn, you know, sort of having a feminist awakening. And you get all the sort of like local color by way of the Weems Weekly and these other documents that you mentioned. And there's so many different modes of storytelling that happen that I think I'm really grateful to have done it this way, where I knew the movie, you know, with some familiarity. And my experience of reading the book was really expansive. Yeah. Like, oh, there's so much more to this right. um, is a really enjoyable way to encounter a text um, rather than the other way around, which is the thing that we often see when people love a book and Mm. then they go see the movie and it's like, well, it's missing this thing and it changes this other thing and it's just not as good. And I'm glad that I got to, you know, read something that made it all much bigger. Yeah. The, the, the biggest surprise in terms of content outside of the form, I think the form Mm -hmm. for me was the, the biggest surprise, but the biggest surprise in terms of content is what's missing in the movie. And I think it's, great that it's in the book. I think it's not as strong as the other pieces, um, which is more of the stories of, of the black citizens of Whistlestop in Alabama, their relationship to Birmingham. We get these mm-hmm. a whole bunch of, of, of sequences in Slabtown um, in Birmingham, which is called the Harlem of the South, and a burgeoning sort of roaring 20s nightlife turn into depression, turn into um, really, really, our, our story in Whistlestop ends about 1939 um, when Ruth dies. Um, I'm sorry, spoilers, you should know that. <laughs> we're doing here. Um, but that whole piece of more backstory of Sipsy and her family and mm-hmm. Big George and other characters that aren't even named in the movie, a real more of a kaleidoscope of experiences um, in the black community of that, that you know, 
as it's alongside, behind, in the shadow of the white characters in the white South and white supremacy writ large. You know, I'm not sure today it would be seen as a particularly effective or sophisticated kind of narrative attempt. But I think for what the kind of commercial fiction work in the late 80s, it could have gone a hell of a lot worse, I guess, is my feeling yeah. about it at this point. Yeah, I think when you take it as a document of its time, yeah. of something that was written in 1987 that imagines life in the South in the 19-teens and 1920s primarily, which is really not that far after 1865, <laughs> it's worth noting, um, I think it was... I think she made, makes a very good attempt. And the reviews from 1987 and 1988 of the book, granted most of those reviews are by white writers, um, give the same kinds of nods. That flag is trying to make all of the characters in the book full and human and to see their humanity and their complexity, um, to let them be good and bad and interesting and nuanced and show us their lives. There's even a moment where um, in the book where we see one of the a black woman character who's thinking or talking about um, like the the caste system of color yeah. with yep. uh, you know shades of black skin color within the black community and her parents only wanting her to associate with light skinned men and that's really bold that's a bold thing for a white writer to try to take on and discuss it at any time I think it must have been very progressive to try to do it well and respectfully mm -hmm. in 1987. And it it doesn't age well, which I think is a testament to progress in how we talk about race and how we think about race and how the standards that we hold um, white writers to when they're telling stories about black characters. Like there's also a lot of use of the N word on the page yep. that comes across as very unnecessary now, but that I, I think does capture the way these people would have spoken mm -hmm. um, in 1920, 1923. Um, I think Fanny Flagg took big risks and this is, it's ambitious. Like yep. I, when I was getting my head around, how does a book like this get reviewed in the New York times and the Washington post? And if it were published today in the 2020 versions of this language and these attempts, would it be taken that seriously? And I'm not sure that it, I'm not sure that it would, but I think it was very ambitious for the time and, just on the whole, the book is so much more progressive mm. um, and so much more sharp, so much sharper in its social commentary. And I think what Flag is trying to say about race and also about gender, um, the gender stuff does age really well um, and I'm sort of quietly about sexuality mm -hmm. that um, it's just really surprising and and how how much of that detail the movie La like they give up a lot of that in the movie and it's probably because you have to give up a lot of those things if you want to sell a bunch of movie tickets and not come across as like preachy. <laughs> yeah, and from a, a plot point of view, a lot of this character arcs um, of this, I guess, secondary or even tertiary black characters that we follow to other places, it's a little hard to follow the plot, right? It's yeah. hard to know like it's, where are they going? She's not as strong. There's not the core of the story, but she's trying to represent sort of the, the wider like, cultural ecosystem. And there's some dead ends and some other things, but we do get representation of over-policing of black people. We get colorism. Mm -hmm. We get variations in economic status. So we, we get complexity in a way and agency and interiority of black characters in a way we don't see in some comp titles. And maybe, yeah. maybe it's, it stands even as a better version or... It looks even stronger in comparison, not to say, you know, a Toni Morrison novel or something like that. But you look at it compared to like The Help, 
right? Right. Or where the crawdads sing. Or even mm-hmm. a movie which I prefer from an aesthetic point of view and a language point of view, Steel Magnolias, which there are apparently no black people in Louisiana in Steel right. Magnolias. So in looking at it, sort of its peer group, I think it stands out. Um, now, if you're comparing it to literary modern literary fiction by sophisticated modern black writers, it's going to fall down. I don't think it's surprising that it falls down. But it doesn't fall, it doesn't fall down in terms of blindnesses. I think it falls down in terms of reach. Uh, as as much as anything. Yeah, I think that's true. Um, yeah. Okay. I just completely lost my train of thought. Well, that's all right. That's all right. That's what we do. We, we're making our observations and taking oh, note know, by note. Actually, it, it came back. Great. Um, on a, another podcast that we both love, the Rewatchables on mm. the Ringer Network, one of the things when they're talking about a movie that they frequently ask is like, could you remake this as a mm. Netflix series? And I actually think that that would be a wonderful format for exploring mm. yeah. the the way that for exploring a more complete adaptation of the book, because you could do, you know, a couple drop in episodes through a 10 episode season that were set in Troutville and Slabtown. And that showed us like where you would have like just a full hour of here are the black characters in their world and really flesh out the whole environment that Fanny Flagg was showing in a way like you just can't do it all in two hours on the screen. Mm -hmm. There's no way to do all of the things that the book does in a two hour film. But I think it would be interesting to have seen this as, you know, a a 10 or 20 episode um, like Netflix series that attempted to do like the, all these relationships and all of these characters with a lot of nuance. Yeah. Anything else about the book in particular before we start, transitioning into talking comparatively and then the, the movie in its in its own terms you know i thought that the organizational style of the book was a little bit it, it's messy and as yes. you were saying like it's all over the place there are a bunch of different formats but um, and i can't remember if we talked about it on a podcast or just on a, a call that you and i were having of like is this like is this you know good storytelling or are these southern people real and to me though it feels mm. very real like this felt reading the book felt like when you sit around with old southern relatives who are telling stories and things just wander off and you don't know if it's going to come back um, or what like to what end the story will come back and Ninny Threadgood's wandering uh, stories through the book did that but also just sort of like the drop-ins of everything else like it made sense to me that a southern storyteller told a story in this way with right. like let's let's toss in the newsletter and let's toss in the thing from Birmingham and let's toss in this other piece and here's this story that you might need or you might not but it's good for local color and um, it just felt it feels very southern to me in its texture yeah it's it's um desultory has a raconteurish quality the book and then it, the story that we get represented on the page in a way represents your reading experience like in a way our re- experience of reading the book is much like Evelyn's experience of meeting Ninny, which is at first you're a little disoriented and not sure you care. Like, why do I? What? Because in the book, it's a little more like this. It takes a little bit longer for Evelyn to befriend Ninny and get interested and invested in the story yeah. of the thread goods. But in the book, we get several chapters of like Evelyn just sort of taking it while she's waiting for Ed uh, mm-hmm. to visit his mother, which has changed to Vesta Adcock in the movie for reasons I cannot parse. Yeah, any, I couldn't in, figure that out in either. any kind of way. It doesn't really matter. It's just one of those things that sticks. I was like, why did they do that? Anyway. And it takes a while for us to care, much like in the same way it takes Evelyn a little while to care, and that she's sort of held hostage in this nursing home, break room, social room, visitor hours day, and she finally finds a mode of entry of caring about it. 
and my experience of the book and movie, and the, the first thirty minutes of the movie are kind of a tough hang. It took mm-hmm. it takes a while to get into it, but once I was into it, I was very much into it. And I found the same way with the book. So we're having the same experience, Evelyn, of having is like I don't sure if I want to listen to this. Why do I care about this? And then all of a sudden, she's showing up with with sweets so that she can hear the next installment uh, of of Iggy sort of comings and goings and tall tales. Um, and so on and so forth. So that, that experience of being thrown into the world and having a sort of whiplash from not caring, not knowing at all, to putting the pieces together is interesting that a character is having a similar experience that we're mm-hmm. having. And it, it adds a certain degree of verisimilitude, right? That, yeah. that, that, that it's not just, you know, um, back in June of 1923 or whatever. It doesn't start like that. We get a character having a similar rediscovery of a way of being that we're rediscovering as well. And I think that's really important to what, if there, what are the messages of the book? Why does Evelyn have a feminist awakening because of these stories? I think is not as obvious as it might feel to some degree. Mm. Um, but one of the things we're being seduced by I think, is this romanticism as Ninny is portraying it. And I think some of the violence and nastiness that, of course, would have happened are being filtered out by Ninny's nostalgia for her own life and the people that mm-hmm. she knew. And that makes sense to me. And that feels real to me. And maybe that's kind of what you're intimating as well. Is like this makes sense as something a Southern storyteller would do you're not necessarily going to get into the realities of what it was actually like in the Depression in a small Alabama right. town. Like you're going to hint at it and things were tough. Things are tough covers a lot. And there's a lot more about mm-hmm. economic inequality in the book than appear in the movie. We get basically the one scene of Iggy being Railroad Bill and then Smokey's an alcoholic for one scene. And that's kind of it. Yeah. Um, when a lot of the book is about these were hard ass times um, from 1919 to 1939 um, between the wars. Um, which yeah, is, you know, where a lot of this happens. The book does a great job of establishing those things sort of bit by bit, as you're saying. Like, it, it, there's not one big chapter that's just like, here's how hard things were. But no. you see, um, we spend, like, time with um, Smokey Lonesome and the hobos. And you hear about you know, what their life yes. is like. And he watches, you know, someone that he had just spent the night before with die. And we see the folks who are waiting for Railroad Bill. And we hear all of these, like, legends and myths and mysteries that un spool gradually in the book that just set up like you don't need a railroad bill if things are great no, right no, like, no. you don't you don't need somebody to be tossing canned goods out to the poor if everything's fine and the movie i mean i understand structurally how they have to do it but the movie takes a bunch of those things that are revealed near the end of the book as sort of solutions to mysteries mm-hmm. and gives the information to us right up front to establish who iggy is um and like establish iggy's character in a way that is both effective, but is also really a cheat because yeah. I, I think it, it cheats the viewer um, from knowing sort of the fullness of this Iggy Threadgood character that we get on the page in the book who um, is just routinely welcoming people at the back door yeah. of the cafe and yeah. giving them food and taking care of people and like is very subversive in a in a powerful and important way. And it's not quite there on the screen. Yeah, so I think... Um before we move into the more direct comparisons to the movie <laughs> and changing to the movie, if you like the movie and you like books, I think this is worth reading, I guess is my ultimate um, takeaway. 100%. Yes. Um, all right. Let's, we're going to get into the movie here in just a minute. But first, let's take a sponsor. 
Today's episode is brought to you by Sourcebooks Landmark. So King Solomon says something very interesting to his son before he dies, and that is, quote, don't let the white man take the house, end quote. These, as I just mentioned, are King Solomon's last words to his son as he dies. Now, all four Solomon siblings must return to North Carolina to save the kingdom, their ancestral home, and 200 acres of land from a development company. Told in alternating viewpoints, Long After We Are Gone by Tara Shelton Harris is a searing portrait of the power of family and letting go of things that no longer serve you, exploring the burden of familial expectations, the detriment of miscommunication, and the lessons and legacies we pass on to our children. It's an explosive and emotional story of four siblings, each fighting their own personal battle, because who isn't, who return home in the wake of their father's death. Make sure to check out Long After We Are Gone by Tara Shelton Harris. And thanks again to Sourcebooks Landmark for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Underlined. Haven't read a Natasha Preston thriller yet? We dare you to try. She's known for her line of chilling young adult suspense novels like The Cellar and The Fear. The New York Times and USA Today bestselling author excels at putting fear into the hearts of her readers. So her newest book, titled The Dare, is about five friends whose senior prank goes very, very wrong. This is the perfect graduation season read for thriller fans who can handle a good scare. The Dare is now available wherever books are sold. You can learn more about it at getunderlined.com. So again, this young adult thriller is about five friends with a prank that goes wrong. There are dark secrets, a twisty plot, and creepy I know what you did last summer vibes. So if you, you know, it's graduation season, you want to revel in that, but like make it scary. You know what I mean? Pick up The Dare by Natasha Preston. And thanks again to Underline for sponsoring this episode. I think it would probably behoove us to start with big differences. Um, well, no, no. Let's let's do our impressions <laughs> of the movie, and then we can come back to differences because I think we want to we want to tackle the movie on its own terms first, to some degree. What makes it work in a movie? What are the slower parts? Um, what works the best for you in the movie, Rebecca? Oh, Jessica Tandy. <laughs> She's incredible in this, and it's a wonderful part. Um, it for is. sure for an older Southern leaning actor. I didn't actually look at Jessica Tandy's bio. Is she from the South? Did you look at it? I didn't either. Yeah. Her accent is a little questionable yeah, to me yeah. um, in the film. Yeah. She, I think she works so well as the no, She's English. She's from London. Well, there you go. That okay. explains yeah, it. Right. <laughs> um, uh-huh. Yeah, her Southern accent raised my eyebrow a little bit. Um, I think she's... She, as the narrator of the story and her relationship and Kathy Bates is just wonderful here and lets Mm. some of the, like the real anger that we get from Evelyn in the book, like that's simmering under the surface in Kathy Bates um, in the film. And I really love that. And uh, Mary Stuart Masterson and Mary Louise Parker, like they work, they do relationship between them. There's so much, like almost everything is unsaid between these characters and everything about them is unsaid by the people that they live with Mm -hmm. but that chemistry and their love for each other like that works so so well um i think the movie really tried to give us a bunch of the beloved side characters from the book but in to varying degrees of success but i think um 
the the whole Ninny Threadgood Evelyn relationship works very well, and the Iggy Ruth relationship on screen works very well. The town feels you know like real and southern and full, and it does capture the sort of interconnectedness of the lives of the white people and black people mm-hmm. who live in Whistle Stop, and that they aren't. It's not a segregated, separated way of living um, in the South, and that's it's true today. There are you know segregated parts of cities, but my experience and knowledge, which of course is limited, but my experience and knowledge of being in the South, um, especially in these like deeply Southern small places, is that there's a lot of living side by side, even with great racism and complexity mm. and people who don't treat each other as fully human. And it's it's complicated still by connection and affection for each other. Yeah. And I think the movie captures some of that very well. Yeah. And I think, you know, one of the things that the movie and book beg us to do is compare Evelyn's life with Iggy's life. I mean, mm-hmm. Evelyn's doing it herself, but I think we're doing it as sort of at a remove and at a distance. And to notice the role of segregation in Evelyn's life versus the role of segregation in white supremacy in Iggy's life, where... You know, Iggy's living with black people. They're her employees, servantish. I mean, they're not slaves, of course, but the econ- they're not economic um, peers by any stretch of the imagination. Where Evelyn, the only black person she interacts with was, is a nursing home attendant. Um, she lives alone, largely alone. She lives with like a half of a person in Ed's attention. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Whereas Iggy has a variety of connections up and down political you know she's best mm-hmm. friends with the sheriff who's also a member of a clan but also you know takes care of black people in a certain weird way but also like we're going to take care of our own black people versus these georgia clan members like a very complicated enmeshment in the racial and economic dynamics of the day where evelyn's principal malady as we come to find out in the book especially is of being isolated of being alone of not feeling connected to anyone not her children not her spouse um she gets sort of a a sassy friend who in in the movie which Mm -hmm. feels superficial and then in the book especially she moves into a social circle that she connects to and the going away to basically a diet loss camp but the diet loss is not the thing that basically she responds to it's these women who are having similar experiences yep. to her whereas Iggy is connected from the beginning she's in this you know the the Threadgood house at the beginning versus Evelyn's house at the beginning of her story couldn't be more different this big sprawling family with lots of messes and people and comings and goings and activity versus Evelyn who has all day to prepare a meal for a husband who doesn't care about it and yeah. that attractiveness I think is part of what's going on there. But part of that is the racial dynamic and the enmeshment and the separation that the suburbs bring in with upward mobility Mm -hmm. after the war too. So like if I'm a grad student writing on this, I'm super interested in like the suburb versus the rural versus the intra-rural urban space of Whistle. There's a reason this is called Fried Green Tomatoes at the Whistle Stop Cafe because the cafe becomes a nexus of life where a bunch of people from a bunch of different walks of life be they grandchildren of slaves or politicians come to eat food together. And it's it's just a fascinating dichotomy to see play out. Yeah, I think 
that's a great point that we were really asked to compare Iggy's life and Evelyn's. And that's, I think that it's that internal comparison that is what drives Evelyn's awakening. Yeah. That, and we get more of it in the book. It's kind of hard to track watching the movie, actually, <laughs> like where the awakening is coming from um, without the background of the book. But we get Evelyn on the page realizing that like she's done all this work to try to be a good girl, basically, yes. like that she spent 48 years. There's this great quote, all that struggle to, t- to stay pure, the fear of being touched, the fear of driving a boy mad with passion by any gesture and the ultimate fear getting pregnant, all that wasted energy was for nothing. So there she was too bored for Tupperware parties and too scared to look at her own vagina. Mm. And like she's just worked so hard to be so good and she's realizing she's lonely she has this like you know completely useless husband who doesn't pay any attention to her and she's hearing these stories about Iggy who is unafraid of the mess yes and it's not always to good effect like Iggy's life is messy in beautiful ways and in dangerous ways but that mess gives her connection and meaning and power Mm. and i i think that's really what drives this evelyn awakening is this realization that like there is no such thing as actually being good enough and pure enough to like get the approval and that's where the tawanda moment in the grocery store comes from and ultimately some of her convert her uh, confrontations with ed that Iggy sort of knows this from the beginning yep. that she's like she's so aware because of her identity and before she I think before she even understands what her identity is she's aware that she's different and she's never going to get the approval that it's like well maybe I might as well lean in yeah <laughs> you know right and just let it be messy and that's what is Iggy's charm but also I think just really the source of her power yeah I think um one of the differences and tell me if I'm remembering this right, Rebecca, that I was struck by in the book is that the the character, the spectral being, the 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 muse or whatever that is Tawanda is a Evelyn Couch creation. Where yes. in the movie, it's something that Iggy says that Evelyn takes up, which I thought was a fascinating difference. And I'm not sure what to make of it. Do you any yeah. read of that? Yeah, I... I don't know why they did it that way in the movie other than like to to try to show the thread between Iggy and Evelyn that if Ninny tells Evelyn about, you know, Iggy had this Tawanda personality that she drew on, it plants a seed of inspiration for Evelyn. But I think Evelyn has so much more agency and and I think I keep saying the word power, but she has so much more power in the book, too, because she has this encounter at the grocery store where this young guy calls her gross names and she starts sitting with it. Um, And I'm reading from the book now, but um, she had always suspected that if provoked, those names were always close to the surface, Mm. ready to lash out and destroy her. It had finally happened, but she was still alive. So she began to wonder. And then she continues to wonder. She had done all that, and yet still the stranger had dragged her into the gutter with the names that men call women when they are angry. And Evelyn wondered, why always sexual names? Mm. And why, when men wanted to degrade other men, did they call them? And, you know, we don't need to say these words on the air. You know what they are. You know what they are out there. You know know what these words are. And so now now she starts to get Mm -hmm. angry looking around at the messages that she's had that she should be afraid of being bad because men will call her names and realizing that she can do everything right 
and men will still call her names. There will still be violence. Like this is the fundamental recognition that you can't be good enough as a woman in the world to escape sexism. Mm -hmm. And so then she's pissed yeah. and she makes up this code name for herself, Tawanda the Avenger. And then she has this these great vivid fantasies that we get to see on on film right after the Tawanda grocery store moment, the face it girls, I'm older and I have more insurance when mm -hmm. she goes and she talks to Ninny and she tells her like, you know, I'll place tiny bombs inside Playboy and Penthouse. And, <laughs> you know, and she's she's just like so almost manic with how she's lit up, I think, with how powerful she feels. But she I loved that in the book, she generates this character for herself that she has all this anger. And it's so foreign to her that she can't. It's not like I am angry. It's like this anger inside me is something else. And I need to give it a name. And here's the name. Yeah. And I think one of the reasons it, it does matter, um, not that it's good or bad, but it's different is that for Kathy Bates to name and create this character, this avenging angel, that's about retributive violence, right? Attrib mm -hmm. uh, uh, retributive justice, because that's not Iggy's mode of existing in the world. Her mode is adapting, of being a trickster. Right. Um, mm -hmm. Anger is not her organizing principle, though she gets angry, certainly at Frank Bennett and other places. But largely, she is a raconteur, uh, a, a troublemaker um, who is so winning that she just charms the literal and figurative pants off people um, <laughs> yeah. in a way that's more, I mean, that's where the bee charmer metaphor gets interesting, right? She's not a bee destroyer and then takes the honey. She knows how to manipulate the bees, both figuratively and literally of her life, mm -hmm. to get what she wants. And Evelyn Couch, I think, eventually gets there. But she has to move through the stage of, what if I just took it? What if I just took a bulldozer to the bee tree and just took the honey out um, yeah, before getting to this more evolved place by the end? I think Iggy is, she has this finely tuned sense of justice. Mm -hmm. And she's trying to be fair and in her own way, or she's trying to do the right thing or force other people to do the right thing. And she achieves that by being charming and sly. Um, Cause you can't afford to be as different as she is in no. this world and also be angry and no, violent. No, 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 Wouldn't have worked. She would have gotten herself yeah, right. killed or it's, ostracized or whatever. Yeah. It's absolutely catching more flies with honey. Like yeah. she charms everyone and she does it with this humor. Like I think the scene in the cafe where there's been a clan rally or like a clan parade and we see her talking to Grady Kilgore being like, you need to tell these guys if they really think that we don't know yes. who they are just because they put sheets over their heads. Like they got to be smart enough to change their shoes. Mm -hmm. Like we know who all of you are. And she brings, she drags things out into the light, but she does it in a way that is as unconfrontational as it could be yeah. while still pushing people to do something where Evelyn has just been so like nice and sweet and honey has not worked for her. Yeah. Well, she <laughs> hasn't had to create a strategy where Iggy really right. has. Right. right. Um, and it's so in the movie, it's really brought home. And I don't think a scene that's in the book. Well, I know it's not because um, it's quite a bit different how things end up, but Kathy Bayer, I'm going to confuse them. I'm sorry for doing that. But Evelyn <laughs> couch, in her full Tawanda mode, literally takes a sledgehammer to her house to take down yeah. a wall. But then as she comes back to it, she puts a, she puts a wall back up, not to reconstitute the existing structure of the home, but to make space for a new alignment, a new sort of family mm -hmm. system, uh, where Iggy is doing that from the very beginning 
uh, certainly after Buddy dies, her older brother, um, played by a very young and charming Chris O'Donnell here, um, who also we thought would be a thing, but then turned out to be, you know, in another NCIS lead, uh, get them checks, Chris, <laughs> no shade. Um, but she then needs to be reincorporated into the, the society of Whistle Stop. And in a move that's meaningfully and remarkably different, and frankly, I don't know if it works, um, or I don't know if I prefer it, let's put it that way, mm. is that Iggy's story with Ruth in the book is one of instant sexual attraction, even as a prepubescent girl, I think. is I, The time jumps around so much, I just kind of forget how old people are at a given times. But the moment Ruth walks in the door... She's it for Iggy. Whereas in the movie, Ruth sort of has to court Iggy. Like she's brought in to bring Iggy back out of the woods or back down from the river. Mm-hmm. Um, she's in full Huck phone fin mode, like fishing with a, a, a sapling with no shoes on by the levee. Um, where the, 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 the relationship, I guess it's meaningful that being brought back into the fold happens because of her love uh, of Ruth but that it's different and I, I think those are those different. I mean, am I wrong? I mean, I feel like those modes, those angles are sufficiently different that really add something different in each context. I, I know. I think you're right. Um, one thing that the book does, I think so well, and that I really prefer is Iggy's family and the town have this, you know, sort of quiet, yeah, not even quiet, silent, almost, understanding of who Iggy is Mm. and an acceptance of it. And there are a couple moments where it comes out loud, like in that scene when Iggy first walks into the house and sees Ruth in the book and like has this childlike, like she's young. It's not fully sexual, but she has this like attraction. Mm -hmm. She's drawn to Ruth and she doesn't like, she can't, she doesn't know what to do with her face and she runs up the stairs and her, the mom, mama Threadgood looks at the siblings around the table and says, now children, your sister has a crush and I don't want one person to laugh at her. Mm. I was like, that is powerful for like 1918 yeah. Alabama. I had the same that thought. What a gift from, I mean, right. I don't know what Fanny Flagg's own experiences. I, I really hope for her that yeah. this is indicative it's, of some kind of unsaid acceptance because yeah. it's powerful it's, stuff. It's book. powerful and it's beautiful. Mm. And also in the book, Papa Threadgood, after the ba- after Stump is born, Papa Threadgood sits Iggy down and tells her now that she's responsible for Ruth and mm. a baby, she'd better figure out what to do. And that's when he gives them the money to start yep. the cafe. Yep. And there's a moment later where Mama has a talk with Ruth and like welcomes her to the family and says, we couldn't be happier for our little girl to have such a sweet companion as you and like so much of it is still unspoken you know like we don't see anything sexual between ruth and iggy like on the page Mm -hmm. at all the closest that we get in the movie i think is that food fight scene in the kitchen (laughs) yeah the director john abnett Um, said he hoped that would be the you know stand in for you know doing it Mm, basically yeah well i was yeah i was telling you i was watching the movie with a friend who had never seen it before and didn't know what it was about and she was just like this how is this not a gay icon and oh my god all the sapphic longing yeah (laughs) like it was and and i i miss that from the movie i wanted i wanted the messiness of um of their of the beginning of their relationship and there's a moment in the book where we hear that like like Ruth leaves town because Ruth is older and she recognizes mm-hmm. what 
Ag is wanting and that it's dangerous and that and she thinks that the thing she has to do is leave and marry Frank Bennett anyway and for to protect both of them um and we we lose all of that like, yep. mm, yeah yeah well in in the movie I mean Ruth is you can see one thing that happened that the movie did was to center Iggy and Ruth's relationship where it's a core piece of the book but there may not be a center outside of the comings and goings of Whistle Stop. You know, yeah. Iggy is the central character, but it's you know kind of first among equals, more of a, she's the the main main character. But Ruth is much more of a peer to Iggy in the movie, um, even to the point where she is her her equal in poker, which is a signification of a yeah playing mm-hmm. poker with the guys and her being able to not only hold her own but win is a symbol of her mastery of the social situation. She can't change the rules of the game, but she can right. play it better than anybody else to her advantage. And that Ruth gets to be a peer. She can, she's not her verbal equal, but she can get enough jabs in, you know, to have to sort of play many versions of the dozens, not even the, like the sixes they played together, the, um, <laughs> mm-hmm. sort of half dozens, where in the book, she's, much, she's beautiful. She, she's described as being even more beautiful, though, let's be honest, Mary Louise Parker at this age. And <laughs> this is, it's its own thing. But she's more of an object in the book of Iggy's affections and Frank Bennett's affection and, frankly, Buddy's affection. The whole town, whole, whole town are sort of struck dumb by her um, physical attractiveness. And I think it's a real strength of the movie that the relationship is a relationship and Ruth isn't just the object of Izzy's affection, something that needs to be saved and protected Mm -hmm. and sort of put to work, but they have a real relationship. In that food fight sequence, they're both equally covered in flour and blueberries, you know, for lack Mm -hmm. of a better example. Um, So I thought that was a real, real strength of the movie. I think so too. And you get that, you get some knowingness from Ruth yeah. in the movie that we don't see in the book at all. Um, the scene where they're, they take the rope. We have to talk about the beach armor. Scene. Yes, we do. <laughs> they take that little drive where Iggy is going to show Ruth how she gets the honey and they have their picnic blankets spread out and <laughs> all the symbolism in the world yeah. of Iggy passing Ruth at the honey jar and Ruth dipping her fingers into the honey jar. And like, they both know what's happening yeah. there, but it's not, I'm not sure Ruth does in the movie. Yeah. Some, she, I think she's under, experiencing some sort it's, of transformation, but something yeah, is going I think on. So. Yeah, there's, that's like this, that's the seduction yeah, moment, right. really. Um, but there's then Ruth's birthday where they go to, mm-hmm. um, to Eva's place and Ruth gets drunk and then they go swimming and they're sitting there in their underclothes on the side of like, you know, the shore of the pond talking about their lives and you can see them look at each other. And there's a moment where if they made that movie today, they would start kissing. Yeah. Um, and instead you just know that that's what's going to happen as soon as we look away. Um, but that Ruth is participating. She participates in the relationship in the movie in a way that we don't get to see her do in the book. Yeah. In the movie, she makes the big move. She does the grand gesture after um, Iggy comes to see her. And I'm, I'm getting a little confused if this happens mm-hmm. out in the book, but Iggy comes to see her and is rebuffed and sort of real and finally understands the score after feeling and hearing that Frank Bennett was a bad guy to know he's actually a very, very bad guy. But then Ruth makes the big gesture of sending her, um, you know, her mother's obituary Mm -hmm. and a quotation from the Bible, you know, the the very powerful and beautiful scene, you know, um, uh, where thou goest, I will go, Mm -hmm. your people will be my people. Basically in uh, an engagement ring you know in in, in the yeah. in the signs and wonders of and what was available and that's no it's in the book too but i just couldn't remember 
mm. the timing about how everything worked out, but basically saying, I'm going to be with you if you'll have me. Um, yeah. And I think she thinks that Iggy will take her, but it's it's a big flex from Ruth to say, you know, I'm, we're, I'm yours if you'll have me. Mm-hmm. Um, not really knowing and not really having Iggy's lifelong skill set of negotiating being a gay person, a gay woman um, in the world. Not that they even have that language to describe it um, (laughs) at the time. I don't know enough about my history uh, Mm -hmm. of um, sexual politics in the South. Like, did they have any antecedents for thinking about um, a romantic relationship between women in a way? And how much were they figuring it out? How much were they uncharted territory? Did they have any sense of writing other people out there in the world like them? I don't know. I'd be so interested to know. Um, yeah, that. I do love that, like, in the book, Iggy is this larger-than-life character, mm-hmm. like, the stuff of legends, and Ruth is drawn to that. And in the movie, I really appreciated that we get to see Ruth push Iggy yeah. and hold her accountable, where to everyone else, it's like, that's that's just Aunt Iggy. Like, she's wild. Mm-hmm. Iggy does these crazy things. Sometimes Iggy disappears and goes down to the wagon wheel camp and hangs out with Eva for a few days. And it's a secret, but it's not actually a secret because everyone knows, but we just don't talk about it. And when Iggy misbehaves in the movie, we do get that like great scene between Iggy and Ruth in the cafe alone at night where Ruth is like, well, do you want to settle down or not? Yep. That's right. And here's what here's what it's going to mean mm-hmm. if you want to settle down. And Iggy has to really commit. Ruth asks Iggy to really commit in the movie. Whereas in the book, Iggy goes away for a couple of yes. days. And like Eva sort of like negotiates this. I, I assume that it's Eva um, negotiates peace between them by sending Ruth a note, uh, uh, something about like, you know, Basically, the equivalent of like, if you love something, go. If you love something, let it go and it will come back to you. Um, uh, Saying like, Iggy just needs you to let her have her freedom Mm -hmm. sometimes. And Ruth in the movie isn't going to go for that. Like, she wants Iggy's commitment. She's taken this big risk to be with her. Yeah. Um. Today's episode is brought to you by W.W. Norton and Company Incorporated. So Negative Space by Jillian Linden follows a week in the life of an English teacher at a New York private school. At home, her children ask constant questions about mortality and her husband offers occasional counsel between Zoom calls. At school, something happens. She accidentally witnesses an ambiguous, possibly inappropriate interaction between a teacher and a student. But how can she be sure of what she saw? Negative Space is a portrait of a woman caught between the pressures of what's normal and what isn't, and examines what we owe the people who depend on us in a fractured and indifferent world. It's a debut novel and a short novel. It's perfect if you want something quick and easy to carry around, but it's also thought-provoking. It takes place during the pandemic, but it's not pandemic-focused, and it really just looks at everyday anxieties and low-threat situations that have high consequences. So make sure to check out Negative Space by Jillian Linden. And thanks again to W.W. Norton and Company Incorporated for sponsoring this episode. This episode is sponsored by The One That Got Away With Murder by Trish Lundy. Robbie and Trevor Cressmont have enough wealth to ensure they'll never be found guilty of any wrongdoing, even if everyone believes they're behind the deaths of their ex-girlfriends. Let us all take a collective angry sigh at that. Lauren O'Brien, the new girl at school, has a dark past of her own, and she's desperate for a fresh start. 
except when she starts a relationship with Robbie, her chance is put in jeopardy. During what's meant to be their last weekend together, Lauren stumbles across evidence that might just implicate Robbie. And after a third death rocks the town, she must decide whether to end things with Robbie or risk becoming another cautionary tale. This is an edge-of-your-seat YA thriller that's perfect for fans of Karen McManus and Holly Jackson. Make sure you pick that up now wherever books are sold. And thank you once again to The One That Got Away With Murder by Trish Lundy for sponsoring today's show. Um, let's see. Yeah, the casting is really good. I think we were talking about it in, in the warm-up to the show. Mm-hmm. It's sort of missed on casting any of the future big time a-list stars i guess in the jessica tandy's at the end of a storied career she's coming off uh, you know driving miss daisy which is a kind of a similar performance in a lot of ways i think this is more quirky and interesting Mm -hmm. and weird in a lot of ways than that one is i don't think driving miss daisy holds up nearly as well as fried green tomatoes does even with all of its um limitations but you know we're saying like mary stewart masterson she did Benny and June. She did Bed of Roses. She did a Woody Allen thing. Uh, she did Radioland Murders and just didn't become the Julia Roberts or the Sandra Bullocks or even the Meg Ryans or Helen Hunts. Like she didn't rise. Yeah. I don't know why. I don't know what her story is. This happens. Not everyone gets to be. But she got several good cracks in it. I think she's great in this. She's wonderful. The story has a different life, though, if it's Jessica, uh, Jessica, um, I'm looking at Jessica Tandy. If it's Julia Roberts as Iggy or it's Sandra Bullock or Helen Hunt, frankly, um, oh, someone who'd be Hunt. great as this, um, early nineties, Helen Hunt just would have had a different shelf life. Um, because now, you know, it just doesn't have the wattage that, you know, even a beach is with, um, uh, Bette Midler, Midler, who also would have been an unbelievable Evelyn Couch if we're going to recasting, though I think Kathy oh. Bates is fantastic. <laughs> um, That's a great thought, though. I'm just not sure Bette Midler could have played the pre-Tawanda Evelyn. I'm just not sure she could have done it. I mean, it would have taken, I don't know, maybe she could have, but... She, like a contained, depressed Yeah, yeah. She would have to do, yeah. pull out sort of the Robin Williams goodwill hunting side of, you know, that, that <laughs> mm-hmm. energy that she brings. But I think that's one reason it hasn't had a great shelf life as a thing people have seen, like that your friend who is a little younger than you hasn't seen it, we can take his anecdote mm-hmm. about it. Because the, the movie did very well at the box office, an $11 million budget, and went on to do $111 million in the box office, which is a huge hit. Um, there were Academy Award nominations, but no wins all the way around. Um, and it became, you know, kind of one of these fondly remembered cable movies that wasn't an art movie, but also wasn't an action movie. Um, it didn't become the best of its kind. I don't think of any particular thing except that I can't, again, there are people that know these things way better than I do. Was there a bigger representation of lesbians on film before this? Like this has to be, if not one of the early, if maybe the earliest representation in a big commercial film of gay women, even though that word is it used, lesbian used, there's no, mm-hmm. um, Ruth kisses Iggy on the cheek sort of in a friendly, plausibly, deniably friendly way. <laughs> um, a lot of it's plausible deniability, I guess, for the, for the movie, but I'm having a hard time coming up with a antecedent of this kind of representation. Yeah, I can't come up with one either. And I actually think that if the movie had just gone like a half step further and there had been one kiss or like one actually sexual moment that acknowledged what this relationship between them really is, I think that would have given it 
more staying power. Mm. And then it becomes the kind of, like, or at least has the potential to become the kind of movie that, like, that people watch and see themselves represented in, that, like, that young gay women watch and say, like, oh, that's me. Do they not but say that already? I mean, maybe I'm wrong. I, I don't know. They don't. Like, I was, the friend that I was uh, watching right, it with right, is right. queer, and she was, she was looking at this, at the early scenes before it really becomes clear what's happening. She was like, how are there not a million mm. lesbian memes about <laughs> right. th- about this movie and about Mary Stuart Masterson is itchy. And I think it's because it's never made overt in any sense. Like it's never fully acknowledged that these characters are gay and you need that for it to be empowering. Yeah. I, I, again, I don't know. I'm just saying, I'm, I'm thinking if, if you're a gay woman seeing this in a the theater in 1992, you're not like, boy, I wonder if these people are lesbians, right? I mean, uh, maybe I'm wrong about that. So I'm just saying like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It probably if you watch if you watch the movie at all as a gay woman, I mean, you're like, you know what's going on here. So do you need the mm-hmm. kiss to do it? Maybe because maybe it's, I, I guess one of this is speaks to one of my other notes. There's not a lot of individual scenes. I'm like, this is the scene. And maybe that's what you're sort of mm-hmm. getting at is if there is mm-hmm. a, you know, even just a little making out on the porch or down by yeah. the river or whatever. But the food fight, is different enough that maybe that's I, I'm not sure I, I, if yeah, some I of the like, power of know. it is the unsaid unexpressed some of the power of it is there and is that spell broken by breaking it I guess for lack of a better term <laughs> you know I'm I'm not sure I think it would have been like if you if you were a I'm lesbian sure in 1992 watching this and you already knew that you were a lesbian and like had that language and the identity I don't think the movie progresses anything but I think that if there had been something, if it were a little bit more overt, it would have had the capacity to do that thing that we hear stories about with other pieces of media where someone's like, you know, I was 12. I knew Mm. I was different. I wasn't sure what that was about. And then I watched this movie Mm. or I read this book and it and and then I got it and Mm. it made sense to me. And I don't think that it's overt enough in the movie to have made that click. Yeah, it's not like Giovanni's um, room or something like, you know, it's not yeah, one of those kinds of yeah, books. Yeah, but it's also not, that's not an experience that I have at all, so I'm guessing. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm guessing. If you if you do know, on yeah. um, bookcry.com I'd love to know either stories or, you know, papers or cultural histories. I'd, I'd love to know yeah. where this stands. But even as a 14-year-old, I was like, I knew the, what was happening. And so I, uh, it's hard to me to know... To be a commercial hit like it was, it has mm-hmm. to tread a fine line, much like Iggy itself. The movie is trudging a line not unlike Iggy's line for a different time um, of existing in the world and reaping the benefits of being entertaining and heartfelt and captivating without being transgressive. It's transgressive without being I mean, overtly so. Yeah, I'm not sure. The- the book is so much more transgressive yeah. and I like, you know, I don't think the world changed that much between 1987 when the book came out and 1991 when the movie no, came out. No, that, no, Like, I think it gave up more than it needed to give up in the movie adaptation. And I'm not sure why. Like, mm. perhaps it's because you get a bigger audience if you're less overt about these things and less transgressive or less potentially offensive like did a bunch of church people get upset about fried green tomatoes and mm. write letters about it i i doubt it but i think if the if ruth and Iggy had made out they would have yeah um, that's right that's no that, doubt about that like that it gives up i think i just think the movie gives up more than it needs to about but not relationship but not anything about, that's in the book though it doesn't get i mean the book is no more overt than the movie is right 
Yeah, I think the book is just so much more transgressive in general yeah. because you get the stuff about like of her parents saying she has a crush and let it yeah, go, right. and the members of the community, like the Weems Weekly newsletter, refers to Stump as the son of Iggy Threadgood and Ruth Jameson. Mm. Like they are accepted as a couple and as a family, even though no one labels them as lesbians, and they don't label themselves that way on the page at all. But like everyone around them clearly recognizes what their relationship is and doesn't just recognize it, but seems to accept it in the book. And we don't, we don't like quite get that in the movie. I don't, I missed it. And I think they could have gone a little bit. I wish they could have gone a little bit further with it mm-hmm. in the movie. I think that would have given it some more staying power. Yeah. That's interesting. Cause in the, one of the changes the movie makes is that Ruth is alive for the trial and where in the book, she's already dead. Right. Isn't that right? Oh, I don't remember. I think she's dead, but she certainly doesn't testify in the book, where she has to testify in the movie, and she has to explain why she left her husband and child Mm -hmm. to go live with this woman. And it's it's fascinating, the the prosecutor's imagination is limited to, she offered you liquor and money, um, (laughs) which is hilarious. And, you know, Ruth is pressed to say, why did you do it? And she says, she's my best friend. And I love her and sort of blushes at the same time. Mm-hmm. And you get no public, co- you, know, you know, that's kind of the, the, the line that both the book and movie tread is, do they know, do, 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 do the Threadgood parents know that they're having sex? I guess is one of my great questions about how these things work. Like how much of this is denial about what's happening? How much of it is acceptance? And how much of it is the space between that's usable for everyone involved? I find the fascinating mm-hmm. Um, kind of question. You know, I guess we're inferring a lot about what their physical relationship is like, um, but I'm comfortable inferring that uh, at this point. Um, Quotes, best scenes, what sticks out to you? Ooh, I think, I mean, Tawanda in the parking lot. Iconic, it's iconic. It's iconic. Face it, girls, I'm older and I have more insurance. Um, And I just loved the added note in the book that like she Evelyn goes home and tells Ed it was an accident. And Ed is just baffled about how she could have accidentally run into a car six six times. That's great. It's really good. Um, a quote from the movie that I loved is Ed asking Evelyn, I think when she's sledgehammering the wall, like, are you going to use that thing to murder me? And she says, if I was going to use my hand, hand." Michelle and I both laughed, cackled (laughs) at that one too. Yeah, I feel like that's going to go, like, face it, girls, I'm older and I have more insurance has been in the pantheon of my life quotes for decades now. But I think that if I was going to murder you, I'd use my hands. (laughs) It's going to enter very quickly. Very quickly. Yeah, that's good. Uh, That, um, I love the food fight in the cafe and that chemistry between them and the, like, just getting away with something and the gleam in Mary Louise Parker's eye when she smears the mm-hmm. cake frosting down Grady Kilgore's face yes. is wonderful. Um, and in the book, I loved the courtroom scene and just the great drama of like Reverend Scroggins shows up and tells the tallest tale and everyone believes him. And then the hobos are paraded in as the choir. Yes. Like, it's just wonderful. It's really like, good stuff. The full circleness of all these, I think that courtroom scene is really the climax of the book because all these people that Iggy has shown up for, for her, like over the course of her life and taken big risks for, now are willing to show up and take risks for her, including Reverend Scoggins, whom she has done nothing but torture. Yeah, it's a little uncool. So Ruth has made a deal with um, 
basically the Scroggins, that if you come and lie for Iggy, she's going to come to church. So it's it's an evangelical <laughs> mode, too. But there is a certain yeah. protecting our own versus the outsiders. Like the Alabama-Georgia yep. feud is an interesting subtext that becomes supratext towards the court where they don't want these Georgia jerks coming in and adjudicating they're black. Don't, they don't want them. We'd rather police our own black people. I mean, which is a mm-hmm. weird sort of sense of justice, uh, weird and being terrifying and racist. Um, but then also, like, we don't want to be on trial. Also, the book gives you like everyone hates Frank Bennett. Like the judge has a reason to hate Frank Bennett. The yeah. sheriff. There's kind of a tacit understanding that if if we can all get away with this together, you can get away. But if you yeah. can't, you can't. We'll have to do the thing, which is a little bit. Oh, actually, a lot of race. That's completely race in the movie, which I thought was fascinating. Yeah, Frank Bennett is a much worse bad dude on the page in the book mm-hmm. um, than the, like, I hate to say it, but like garden variety bad abusive dude that we get yeah, in the movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Where like in the book, we know like he beats Ruth, but before that he has raped other women mm-hmm. and beaten women and does horrible things to women of color. And like everyone has a reason to want him gone. And the judge is just going to go along with it also. Yeah. Um, yep. But the like the theater of that courtroom scene, mm-hmm. I just loved. Yeah, I I don't know if it's all um, echo booms of To Kill a Mockingbird, but Southern courtroom scenes, I, mm-hmm. I think usually because the stakes seem high and about larger culture because it's generally about race is often, you know, either in this case, it's it's part and parcel of it too. But there's a certain like the law versus cultural belief at stake is what's being adjudicated as much as a particular crime. I always find super um, compelling too that he's that he's that Reverend Scroggins brings in his own Bible so that he doesn't have to lie on a Bible is great. One quibble, yeah, I'm sorry, I'm so sorry for everyone to do this. Bring it. There's no way that Reverend Scroggins knows what Moby Dick is in 1936. Like it doesn't. Ha- Melville doesn't have a critical revival in the 20 until like the late 20s in academia. Like it's not the, it's not the thing we know as Moby Dick now. Like maybe Huck Finn. Again, very small quibble. I was like, he wouldn't have had... Mo-. So anyway, that's my tweedy, my moment of tweed um, for everyone involved there. Um, let's see, from the courtroom. Also an interesting inversion of To Kill a Mockingbird that Har- Harper Lee, of course, it's a Southern commercial breakthrough, maybe literary, maybe commercial, maybe whatever. The trial scene where we have a white woman putting herself on trial where she had the option of just letting the black person hang for it, literally, versus the trial in To Kill a Mockingbird, which is putting a black body on trial for other reasons. It's an interesting inversion, I think, of, of what's going mm-hmm. on there. Um, and very much in this, I don't know, maybe not an overt response to, but I think you have to think about the politics of someone, the race of the person being on trial. Because Iggy's given the option. Grady, Grady says, mm-hmm. you know, we can take him in and it's a lot easier and this, someone has to pay for it. Um, and you could get away with this rather than both of you going and Iggy won't allow it. Her most, her most, um, dangerous move. I think one interesting thing about Iggy is she's generally not interested in troubling the structure. She's not, yeah. she's not interested in solving problems, but doing what she can. One, one note that doesn't ring particularly well today, though, I think it speaks to her, mode of operation is smoky is he's got the shakes right he's in withdrawal mm-hmm. and he can't eat and this this happens both in the book and the movie which is interesting that of all the the minor scenes this is one that was included and our with our today's sensibility her getting out the whiskey and giving it to him is not like maybe the best move You're like you know you got to go to betty ford well that's not available right. they don't even know i think about what's going on that's palliative care not mm-hmm. structural 
um, reform. But that's what Iggy's able to do. She's not able to sort of challenge the racist clan, but she can ingratiate herself enough with those in power to protect the people as much as she can, the people she cares about. So that's an interesting byproduct. That's all wrapped up in the trial scene um, as well. I think the Tawanda one, but I do think I'm gonna, I would have I would used my hands is also a wonderful <laughs> one. I didn't remember this. This is both in the book. One of my, I think the funniest quote that mm-hmm. Cicely Tyson gets um, in talking about Grady having a problem with black men, uh, well, black people writ large, sitting next to them at the stop. She says, he'll eat a chick- an egg out of a chicken's ass, but he won't ne- sit next to a black boy, is <laughs> uh-huh. just a banger of a, of a laugh. And looks like it gets a genuine laugh from Mary Stuart Masterson in, mm-hmm. the, in the filming of it. Probably the single funniest line. Um, other notable um, scenes or, or, or quotes? I... You know, I remember watching the movie as a kid and thinking this scene with Evelyn answering the door in her saran wrap dress was like, was funny. And like, it's funny on a couple of levels. Like, one, it's funny that like someone would answer the door in a saran wrap dress for their husband. And this is the way that they were teaching like seduction and how to save your marriage in the late 80s. Um, But like I, I, through my adult feminist eyes, like it's sad that this is what mm-hmm. Evelyn is trying. And we, I think we're supposed to be sad for Evelyn because she's sad. Um, but also it's hilarious that it's like a full shift dress yes. with a matching jacket and brooches. And there's like a headband. Yeah, that was wild. She's, she has glitter on her face. And I had this moment of like, did she just misunderstand the assignment? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Or is this a willful misunderstanding of the assignment? Like, well, they told me I had to put on a saran wrap outfit to seduce yeah. my jackass husband at the door. And so at least it's going to be be cute. Her, yeah, her sexual um, imagination is so s- circumscribed that she can't even imagine what, what is sexy about being wrapped in saran wrap. She's like, right. she just has to replicate what's familiar. To her. Right. Yeah. It's just like, a f- there's it's full coverage. Like, you can't even see through the saran wrap. It looks like a worse dress somehow. That's what it turns out. It, it does. It's a real like, oh, honey. Yeah. <laughs> How out of touch she is with her body is an ongoing theme. And even to the point where Jessica uh, Ninny Threadgood has to tell her, you're going through menopause, woman. Like, mm-hmm. like she's, so, she's so alienated from her own physical being outside of a unhealthy relationship with food yeah. um, that she doesn't even know. She didn't even know what sexy is, right? She doesn't. She doesn't even have a sense of what that could mean. That changes a little bit in the book, actually. With Ed, she describes one of my memorable things that she, she had an mm-hmm. orgasm and scared Ed half to death. There is a little more <laughs> yeah. progress in their relationship there. That's largely of her own doing. Ed Couch, is, his name is Ed Couch. Just for the record, <laughs> I want to put that out there. His couch is in his name, um, so that gives you some yeah, insight and there. Ed- Ed really gets the Homer Simpson treatment in the movie. Like, he's not a great husband in the book, but he's completely worthless in the movie. And I'm not sure that that is of service to Er Evelyn's character and the awakening that she has, because what we're... What we like, what we really see with her in the book is the '80s version of Betty Friedan's problem without a name. Yes, you know that she lives in the suburbs. She has a nice life. Her husband has a job. They have this nice house. Their kids have grown up. They've done all of the right things, and she still doesn't feel right. Like mm-hmm. she just doesn't feel fulfilled. There's something is missing, and like you know, Friedan is talking about it with you know women starting to drink in the afternoon and like take mood stabilizers, and Evelyn is eating, and that's her version of it and on the page at least we see her like talking to Ed about 
not feeling good. And Ed even suggests in the book that she go to a psychiatrist and talk to someone Mm if, and and like, you know, he doesn't understand, like, and I think that's very real that like, you know, this is still a conversation that straight couples have with each other about their different experiences of gender in the world. But in 1987, there were not like 50 year old white men sitting around really talking to their wives about like, you seem unfulfilled, and maybe you should talk to someone yeah. and we should, ex- and we should explore and are you fulfilled in our sex life? Like, she had done all the things that society had told her she was supposed to do. And she's really wrestling with it. And the way that Ed gets done dumbed down in the movie I don't think does anybody any service but he does make a good he's a good punchline for if I was going to murder you yeah he's a punchline in the book and you know a more I guess nuanced reading of the movie would be to look at like is Ed happy in this situation like he comes home yeah he races for a beer to watch baseball and that's all he does but that's his version of eating baby Ruth he's not any happier than than yeah he doesn't have any tools to ameliorate the situation but I don't think it's serving him she definitely is having it worse, but I don't think Ed's like, yep, I've got it all. Um, like, I want to like, right. I, yeah. Anyway. Yeah, I do think there's a great moment in the movie where she's like, I'm doing all of this to save our marriage. Yes. And Ed, I think we can assume, is completely unaware that their marriage is in trouble. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is like, this is a theme of media and culture, but also I think just a theme in in general, like 70% of divorces are filed by women. Yeah. And it's, this is a thing that happens that women have these awakenings and they figure out that like marriage has not been set up in a way that's constructed to make women happy and fulfilled traditionally and society in general isn't set up that way. And women become unhappy and they leave their marriages and the men are like, I didn't know anything was wrong. Mm -hmm. And that's, if this had gone a different way, if Evelyn had decided to bail, like if Ed comes home one day and Evelyn's suitcases are gone and she's just done, I think Ed's completely unaware that there's really a problem. Yeah. Also his, his dream of what her marriage should be, could be limited in its own ways. Like, well, Mm -hmm. this is what it is. You know, it's, it's very hard to know. Um, But both of them, I think, well, Evelyn, let's stick there because she's the most important and interesting character, mm-hmm. has done everything she should and nothing she wants. Uh, and that's yeah. basically what she comes to realize um, towards the end. Any Joyce Carol Oates Oh No Awards? Ooh, you know, I I didn't have so many in the book because you can understand like the book is a product yep. of its time, but the movie does some things that the book doesn't do that I was like, we just don't need this. Like the scene in the movie where Frank is going to come back and the Alabama clan boy or the Georgia clan boys are mad and that they like, they come and tie up George outside the cafe and are whipping him Mm -hmm. with a lash is incredibly difficult to watch and also just unnecessary. Yeah. Like we don't need this. We don't need this scene. We already know that the clan is bad. We don't need to watch the violent abuse of a black man on screen. Um, and I didn't think that we needed the violence between Frank and Ruth on screen either in that scene where Iggy goes to take Ruth away mm-hmm. from the house. I don't I don't need to see him slap her and throw her down the stairs. And now that I'm saying this, we should put a trigger warning. Yeah, no, d- we, we should. Um, yeah, um, I had the same. I mean, look, racial violence was real in a way that even it's more in the there's some more in the book. Maybe I think you could see as the movie acknowledging that the stakes of this aren't just, you know, dudes with sheets that are good old boys playing poker at the Dill Pickle Club with, on Saturday nights, mm-hmm. that there's another side to this. Um, but I think the sheets are enough. It does, it does do 
a little more white savioring in that moment than I think we're, you know, kind of, uh, we're a culture to a little bit differently now where, you know, Iggy comes out and stops them and gets crazy to do it. Um, that is a difficult one too. In the book, I think our, our understanding of weight and dieting is more sophisticated now than is represented. Um, Mm -hmm. in the book, there's very much a, I don't know. I just think it's that we wouldn't represent any more in a way like this, where it's like candy bars and being overweight is such an overt symbol of being sad and disappointed. Um, it can be complicated in lots of different ways. And that going to the mm-hmm. diet camp is a moment where she finds happiness. I think the book does a good job of saying it's not because she's losing weight. It's because she found people, but it's yeah, kind of mixed up community. together in a way that I'm not sure we would do the same anymore. Um, does that yeah, make sense? I agree. Mm-hmm. Totally. Yeah. And I, I like my reaction. Cause it had been so long since I had seen the movie when Kathy Bates first comes on screen. I, I just read the book last week yep. and the book, you know, has Evelyn really obsessing about her weight and thinking about how big she is and how, how much bigger she's going to get in all these candy bars that she's eating. And when Kathy Bates appears on screen, I'm like, Kathy Bates isn't even that big yeah. in this yeah. movie. Like, right. and also we, you know, we don't represent weight and relationships to food in the same way. Mm-hmm. Um, but like just the way that Kathy Bates is drafted in, in this very normal body yep. to, play a character who you know is supposedly using her body um like she's so disconnected from it that she's just abusing her body with food as a way to deal with her feelings and it we get a little bit more of it in the book that's not just about food like yeah there's this great quote where she wondered why she had to live in a body that would get old and break down and feel pain mm. why couldn't she have been living inside a desk a big sturdy desk or a stove or a washing machine. Like, this is how sad she is and how far away, how disembodied she is, is that she thinks it would be better to be a washing machine. Yes. Yeah, it's fa- <laughs> that, that, that's <laughs> and one of the, almost borders on the surreal, like kind of more experimental and yeah. edgy, that kind of um, imagining we, that she does in those yeah. moments. Very interesting. Yeah. There's yeah. a whole um, dissertation or a chapter of a dissertation to be read on food representations here mm-hmm. because let's be honest what they're serving down at the whistle stop is not great for you fried green tomatoes <laughs> and you know every yeah, everything that goes into classical southern cookie uh, cooking is not great for you but the way it's represented as being soul food rather than comfort food rather than junk food is fascinating to see and the way in which it's eaten and the reason for which food is eaten um, I think if this movie is made today, that you're right, the the gay relationship becomes more central, more overt, more sophisticated, more modern in a way, even if mm-hmm. it's set during the same period. But the food culture that we live in now would make greater hay out of the cooking and ingredients and all of that kind of stuff. We you get a oh, little yeah. bit of that. Um, you get like at least one sexy kitchen scene in the 2020 version of this movie. Yeah, yeah. It, well, just but even some food, foodie you know, kind of representations of the craft and the, you know, the post top chef um, knowledge, very regular people like me who don't do cooking know um, and be curious to see how things were made. Um, one note that's fascinating too, I was certainly subject to this is thinking that fried green tomatoes were a Southern delicacy or regionalism. Apparently it's not, it was a, you know, basically North American um, after world war two into the depression of people needing a way to use all the tomatoes and green mm. tomatoes are bad to eat by themselves. So like anything, if you put cornmeal on it, salt and pepper, and fry it up in butter, it's pretty darn good. <laughs> um, so apparently from Indiana to Massachusetts. Um, but this was the real glow-up moment for fried green tomatoes. Probably 
The idea of frying great tomatoes is more of a legacy of this book and movie than anything else. It's something you see on I menus would, all over the place. Yeah, and I've I don't think I've seen fried green tomatoes on a menu outside of the South, mm. but I live in arguably one of like if not the food capital of the South, one of the food capitals of the New South. New Orleans is very mad at you right now, but I'm just putting that to the side. Okay, go ahead. Well, can, can and Charleston. Proceed. We can adjudicate um, that some other time. <laughs> but I see fried green tomatoes everywhere Mm -hmm. um and i do think that this movie did something for that like this is apex mountain for the dish of fried green tomatoes yeah very very much so um recasting anybody you do differently i don't really want anyone differently i have to say i do i i miss in the movie i understand why it's not there but i miss who eva bates oh in the book well that's Giving him a part. Okay, yeah, that's the yeah, I see. What yeah, this is a tiny part, but like Grace Zabriskie is not how I pictured no. Eva Bates from the book. Like we're supposed to picture this like voluptuous redhead who knows no shame and like really lives in her body mm-hmm. and is sort of the inverse of Evelyn. Like Couch a sexual healer, this. like a, someone yeah, exactly. Marvin Gaye would phrase, sing about. Yep, you know. <laughs> that's a, that's the phrase I was just about to use. Oh, okay, that, like, <laughs> you know, yeah. <laughs> That um, that Iggy goes to her, and Buddy had known Eva Bates, and later Iggy takes Stump to Eva Bates, and like that's questionable. Yeah, that's a that's a that's a maybe, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, we don't need to go down no. the ethics of of that one, but um, I would have loved just as a nod, I guess, to who that character is to see whoever the 1991 version of Christina Hendricks oh, is. Oh, like Lord, if, yeah. If, yeah. If we get 2020 Eva Bates, it's Christina Hendricks 100%. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's one omission that, um, unlike, say, the, the representation of the extended black universe, you could have added in without changing the structure of the movie too much. And I think mm-hmm. maybe the most transgressive character in the whole book yes. frankly more transgressive mm-hmm. than Iggy to the port she's literally marginalized it has to live down um by the river yeah I, I, I was I was hoping for more too I didn't remember it coming um out of the book reading this time so I was hoping to be surprised but I I, I wasn't mm-hmm. um again only recast if you want to give this move, movie a higher profile in the future by getting someone who became a bigger star that's that's really it into it in the watching of the movie um, I didn't find anyone to be uh, swap outable. You know, of the main Tandy Bates, uh, Mary Louise Parker, and Mary Stuart Masterson, the four of them are the heart and soul of the movie. Um, Cicely Tyson adds some as well, um, but you got them right. You got them right, and I think a lot of the shortcomings mm-hmm. of the movie are made up for by those characters being so indelible and memorable and watchable. Um, that not else, you don't have to do too much else with it. I think there's a I think there's a better version of this movie still out there with that same cast, but I don't think yeah. the cast is what's limiting what the movie is doing here. I agree at all. Yeah. Um, do you save the book or the movie? It's fraught here, I think for you, it maybe more than fraught. me. It is fraught. I think I might be having recency bias from having just read the book and like feeling this real sense of discovery about it, but. I don't know, the friend I was watching with last night, you know, we ended the movie and I found myself being like, well, in the book, here are all the, here's yeah. all the other stuff, you know, or here's how they do it in the book. And 
I think I'm, I think I would save the book, honestly. Like, I, I yeah. also think that this is going to change my relationship to fried green tomatoes when I mm. pass it on cable. Like, there are scenes that I would still, mm. pa- I will always and forever watch Kathy Bates smash her car and yell to Wanda. Um, but I like the, I feel more affection, I think, for the version of these characters and the version of this world that I spent time with in the book. The only thing I lose in my in my difficult decision to save the the book is the Ruth fleshing out and Mary Louise Parker's mm-hmm. representation. I think yeah. the Iggy we see in the book, we get in the movie. I think the Evelyn we get in the book. I think the Ninny we get in the book for sure. The Ruth we don't get to keep. The Ruth that that's we true. like in the movie we don't get to keep. I think that's made up for by a lot of other things. So I, it's not an across the board win, right, to keep the book, but that's mm-hmm. that's the one sadness I would have. If I could somehow do an addendum, you know, a footnote or a... Uh, uh, a fanfic that has a, yeah. the Ruth built in, uh, in the way that the movie does a little bit more. Ooh. It'd be a clearer cut. Fried for me, green but tomatoes I, I fanfic that has to exist. Yeah. What else? Last last thoughts, unanswerable questions, things that you're left bothering with. Um, mm. I've got one, but that's it. You know, I didn't have any unanswerable questions. I. I didn't, I have a quibble, I guess. It's just a personal quibble. I didn't love how the beginning of the movie compresses so many things yep. into one event that it's the, it's the wedding day and Buddy dies and that's when we meet Ruth and that Iggy watches it happen and like the, the whole, like all these things happen at once that in the book are separate establishing shots really for these characters. Buddy getting killed by the train is just lives. way too much. Also, the thread good should stay yeah. away from trains. Just stay away from, just don't even get close to them. <laughs> Right. I, oh, I loved that the funeral for Stump's That's arm great. happens. They that they kept it for the movie. It's such a great I don't idea. Think I have any any other? There, I didn't Google anything weird. Yeah. You know, after reading or watching this, and sometimes that happens. What's yours? The end of the movie. Mm. Um, in the book, Ninny dies. Never, never even is intimated that she's going to come live with Evelyn. She goes back to her house. It still exists in the book, right, Rebecca? Like, she goes back to it? <sighs> yeah, right. Um, and then, you know, Evelyn and she continue to have a friendship. Eventually, she dies mm-hmm. just of regular old age. And then Evelyn goes to the graveyard to visit her. And there's a line in the book that says, and I remember it because my memory of the movie was um, weighing on me because I didn't remember mm-hmm. it happening this way. And there's a reason for that because it doesn't. That since the last time she had visited Ninny, there is a note um, yes. on yeah. Ruth's grave from Iggy, or from the beach armor. So it's Iggy, obviously. So in that in that model, it's pretty clear what's going on. Iggy is still alive. Weirdly, Evelyn never asked <laughs> Ninny through all of this if Iggy is still alive, <laughs> which is kind of strange because we even hear about Stump's future history in the mm-hmm. book. Um, so we get we get sort of the delightful surprise that, oh, Iggy is still out there um, and still holding a beeswax candle uh, for Ruth. Whereas in the movie, Michelle and I watched it together last night and I asked her expressly, he's like, is there a world in which you read this as Ninny is Iggy? Yes. And I think that's the, I think that's the dominant reading for most people of the movie. That's what I thought growing up. I think I I did too. I think I did too. Yeah. I thought that that's like what that winking moment is between the, when Evelyn and, 
Ninny are standing there in the graveyard and Evelyn's looking at the note. And she's like, Iggy's still alive. And Jessica Tandy gets this gleam in her eye. And it's like, oh, you were Iggy all along. And that's 100% what I thought the ending of this movie Which was. Which doesn't work I at all, Rebecca. That doesn't work. I mean, sorry, I'm getting... No! Ninny is, no. is not Iggy. Like, that, it's, even, in, even if she's like doing a... I don't know, some sort of shaggy dog impression of someone else for reasons that are obscure at best. She's not, she just isn't. I agree. I did not love the ending of the movie for a variety of reasons. And having read the book now, like when I was reading the book, I didn't remember that I had always thought this about that relationship. But yeah, that's what I thought was the big reveal. I should call my mom and ask her. It's a great question. You know, we've watched this a million times together. Like, do you think that's what's happening at the end? And I do love that we see Iggy again at the end of the movie that like that, you know, this family stops a little roadside stand and an old woman lets them take the honey for free Mm -hmm. or whatever, whatever it is. Um, I also, just while we're talking about fried green tomatoes and the story of this, I think we have to thank Fanny Flagg for just undoubtedly planting the seed that led to the Dixie Chicks classic goodbye. I was going to say way more ahead of its time in that regard (laughs) of like, um, you know, basically grassroots justice that everyone agrees with. No one's like, oh boy, Sipsy should really be on trial for that. Like everyone understands <laughs> the limitations of the, the legal system in that particular. So you've got two questions for your mom. One is, you know, what's your reading of the end? And also, did you understand these people were lesbians? Did your mom understand mm. these were lesbians when she was watching I it in 1992? Know. I don't know. And part of like, you know, we she's from the deep South. We lived in Kansas I think it's possible that she understood they were lesbians, but knew that I wouldn't as a kid. And what a time we grew up in, Rebecca. Right? Yes, that sounds exactly right. <laughs> but like, I wouldn't know that's what was happening. And so it was okay. And, mm-hmm. you know, like, props to my mom. She's much more progressive now than she was in 1991. Um, so I think now she would have, like, let her, you know, if she were raising me today, she would have let me watch this and been like, clearly these ladies are gay. It's fine. Um, but, we definitely didn't talk about it. Like we watched mm-hmm. this movie together dozens of times and we never talked about what they were yeah, and what that relationship between them was. I mean, not yeah. to tell tales out of school, but my own extended family system, we have, uh, again, I'm trying to be nonspecific because I, I don't, I think some of them may listen to the show, but like a couple who are women who to mm-hmm. the kids were friends that lived together. That was the, we, you know, we weren't mm-hmm. told X mm-hmm. or Y. It was sort of Z thing. And I don't know that we ever, it's weird what you get used to in a family system. Yeah. And mm-hmm. you can become acculturated and it's, you can have a micro-cultural knowledge and understanding and rule set that doesn't apply to the, the wider world. I think that's one thing that Whistle Stop is doing for and with Iggy and sort of holding yes. space and indeterminacy and possibility for her, even if that doesn't and certainly doesn't apply to the wider world, the, the credence and mm-hmm. space they would give to people outside of that community. Um, Rebecca, fun as always, always yes. something to discover. We've got to start thinking about our next one. Mm. Summertime. Have a good one. One for them, one oh, for I'm us. One for them, one for field us. Field of dreams, baby. It's field of dreams time. <sighs> it does feel that way. The weather's getting warm. Did you see the, the Cubs and White Sox might play an official game at the Field of Dreams? Yes. Mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure there's like a, well, before COVID, there was like a contest you could win to go attend that. Yeah. Well, I think that was going to be an exhibition <laughs> game, but now since they don't need people in the butts in the seats, they don't even want butts oh, in the seats. Right, they right. can do it out what, there. What better place to play than a cornfield now? Yeah. 
All right. Email us, podcast at bookride.com. Love to hear your feedback, other reactions you had to us um, and what we said and the open questions and concerns and just our observations, uh, your own experience of me, either of those things. Yeah. Send me links to all of your theses yes. and blog posts about queer readings of Fanny Flagg. All your cultural study pieces about anything your related to Your master's papers. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> all right, Rebecca. I'll talk to you later. Have a good one. <laughs> <laughs>